Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. And here now, without further ado, is our own edition of Sasquatch, Dr. History. Good morning, Jeb. How are you doing today? I'm good, sir. Good. Before we go, I just want to uh, say something. Uh, we traveled over to Oregon, and I would like to mention that if anybody's traveling that way, stop in Baker City, Oregon. Have you ever been to Baker City? No, many times. They have a museum. Many times. They have a museum that is just amazing. Really? Now, you know, it's interesting that you should say that because the last time I was over there, I broke down in uh, Baker overnight, and I wanted to go to that museum, but it didn't work out. And if you like rocks, <laughs> excuse me, rocks, like you know, in, uh, like as in rocks, oh, okay. they have thousands of a collection of rocks. I mean, I didn't know there were so many. They, they've got a 950-pound crystal uh-huh. sitting. Anyway, just uh, you got to stop there. The other place I'm There's gonna, a lot of weird things that fascinate <laughs> you, you know? I know. Well, this next one maybe more so, but it, just outside of Portland, yeah. McMinnville. I've been there. They have the Spruce Goose airplane. Oh, uh, it's completely the Howard Hughes. Yeah, Howard Hughes. That huge airplane. It's yeah. all enclosed. It's all in that plane museum, museum. right? Yeah. But they've got lots and lots of World War One, World War Two airplanes. It's oh. an amazing. You were there. I yeah, we wandered around there. I I'm fascinated with flight. So really? if you're ever that way. Stop in McMinnville at that uh, at that uh, airport okay. or air museum. Guess who's going to call at about ten fifteen this morning? Our our uh, sponsor Zach. Okay, okay. remind me. Don't uh, are we going to talk about anybody famous today? Uh, you may have heard of this guy. Oh oh, George Armstrong Custer. You've heard of the Last Stand. This is his first stand. Really? His Follow first. me, boys. There's <laughs> so, no Indians here. <laughs> no. So, okay, so come with me. Here we are. Uh, it's a bitterly cold morning, November 27th, 1868. You can hear the crunch of soldiers' boots and the horses' hooves on frozen snow. And that was the only sound betraying this uh, kind of stealthy approach of nearly 800 of the 7th Cavalry Regiment troopers and their horses as they headed toward a sleeping Cheyenne village. Now, now well, wait a minute. 800 soldiers very, are, very not, quiet. They are not stealthy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the horsemen were nearing the end of a, an exhausting forced march that began the day before when scouts reported intercepting a large Indian trail yeah. leading south. Well, the approximate 100 warriors who had made the trail after raiding uh, up in Kansas, so they were returning to their winter camp on the Washtenaw River, near the western border of Indian Territory in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. just east of the Texas Panhandle. Right. You, you know where I'm there. talking yep. about. Yep. Okay. So now only a few more miles of trudging over the frozen snow, and the troopers would be in attack position. Uh-oh. Okay. Now the officers and the company sergeants had already ensured that any piece of equipment or horse tackle, uh, attack, uh, you know, bridles, stuff like that, that would... Uh, jingle or make any noise had been uh, securely tied down. So they took off their spurs. They took, they off, took off the bridles and and uh, nothing that would rattle the canteens. Yeah, and they everything. only they only whispered to each other. Whisper. 
Whisper. And the veteran troopers checked and then rechecked their pistols and their rifles, make sure everything was loaded, and they quietly advised the inexperienced recruits to do likewise. Okay. So, as the cavalrymen drew closer to the sleeping village, the dogs that customarily accompanied them picked up the scent of the nearby Indians. Now, wait a minute. Wait, they had dogs. Weren't yeah. they afraid they'd bark? Well, let me get to that. <laughs> well, sure. It's your program. Go okay. <laughs> Thank you. So, and yeah, the Indians began to growl and bark. Okay. You're ahead of me. Okay. And I haven't seen the script. No. No. And so, the regiment's commander, good old friend, Lieutenant Colonel George A. Custer, oh, yeah. ordered some of his men to strangle the unlucky animals. Oh, my goodness. Now, now, Custer and his brother, Captain Tom Custer, personally dispatched their own dogs. They had their own two dogs. They they killed them. Shot their dog. They, no, they didn't shoot them. No, no, they had to strangle them. Oh, my goodness. So, I never, you know, anyway, we'll go it's to that. It's a good thing they didn't have German shepherds. Oh, man. Anyway, so here they go. Uh, so, when the unit reached the low hills overlooking the narrow Washita River from the north, the lead troopers peered through the gloomy darkness, and they could just make out the white cone-shaped teepees of an undetermined number of Cheyenne lodges. Now, this doesn't this doesn't sound right. I mean, Indians, they were so attuned and so alert as to what's going on. Well, and I think you'll see where we're going on this, though. Okay. Okay, so Custer ordered the regiment's 11 cavalry companies divided into four battalions, uh-huh. and they wanted to surround the village and strike all at once from all sides. Really? So... Now, concerned that Custer had not conducted enough uh, reconnaissance of the target or the surrounding area, now that doesn't sound familiar, does it? Mm-mm. Not even the scouts knew how uh, extensive the village might be. Or they how, didn't know how big it was? Or how many warriors. They didn't know. In fact, there's a Captain William Thompson that posed a question that was likely on the minds of some of the other troopers that were maybe a little nervous. He said, uh, suppose we find more Indians there than we can handle. No, I think that is probably a valid question. Now, Custer, as it was his custom, yeah. you know, he'd been in the Civil War and, and one thing or another, but he uh, dismissed the comment with this. He said, all I'm afraid of is that we won't find half enough. There are not Indians enough in the country to whip the 7th Cavalry. You know, Custer really could have qualified for some clean white sheets and a little room someplace. (laughs) Well, you know, he was so confident in his abilities and the fighting prowess of his regiment that during the hour it took for the battalions to move into their final attack positions... It took an hour? Yeah. He actually stretched out on the snow, covered ground, pulled his heavy wool uh, greatcoat over his head, and promptly fell asleep. Took a nap. The guy was really nervous. <laughs> you know, just uh, interesting. Anyway, you know, let me check and see if Zach's okay. on the phone. All right, uh, Wheels. Do we have Zach ready to go? We we don't. But if you'll give me just one minute, I will. All right, let me know. Uh, go ahead, Doctor. Okay. Please. So uh, by 1868, you know, the frontier armies experienced fighting Indians on the vast expanse of the plains had shown that finding the Indian bands was more challenging and exhausting and frustrating than actually fighting them. And we, you know, we know that Plains Indians were nomadic. You know, they had a portable culture. They yeah, could they, pack up and be gone. In, they didn't stay at a motel. No, six. in a few few hours. So yeah. the Cheyenne, the Comanche, the Kiowa, Arapaho—they uh, had no permanent villages. Yeah. You know, they. 
they uh, here today, gone tomorrow. Yeah, they, avoid the IRS. They ranged wide over hundreds of miles, and what we'd call a mobile cluster of buffalo hide teepees that could be dismantled and packed on horse-drawn ta- uh, travelway within minutes. I mean, they they knew how to do this. They'd done Absolutely. it hundreds of times. Absolutely, and, traveling salesman. Yeah. But at the approach of an army column, an alerted Indian band could pack up and be gone, just virtually disappear Really, as soon as they had a hint that the cavalry was coming close. Yeah, but the, the cavalry had all these trackers and everything, and you don't just hide all those horses. I, I, I and... know, but they, they, it, this is the way it went. But, okay. you know, when Indian army fights did take place, the combat was a lot different from what they had in the Civil War. You know, it's more of a guerrilla-type fighting, and uh, although large numbers of Indians might be involved in the fight, each warrior fought as an individual and not under any centralized command. Okay, so we're talking about how the Indians fight. Now, they uh, just was a one-on-one type thing. Some warriors in battle might follow a particular chief or leader, but only as long as they thought it personally beneficial to do so. Really? In other words, uh, if the fighting began to go against them, the Indians more often than not would simply ride away. They would ride away, huh? Yeah. And sensibly, I thought they'd stay there, do or die. <laughs> not necessarily. Oh. If they had no promise of a quick and easy victory, they would be gone. So, but the Indians usually could only be made to stand and fight if retreat was impossible or if soldiers threatened their women and their children by a a sudden unexpected attack. So really, they were just like us. Yes, they really were. So in summer, you know, the bands were widely scattered following the buffalo herds, uh, and this presented the army uh, with the obvious problem of finding a fixed target. So only in winter did large numbers of Indian bands concentrate in these huge encampments. So during the cold months, the warriors and the families remained mostly inactive inside their lodges. If the army wanted to find Indians, winter was the only time to really do it. You know what? It sounds like a very boring lifestyle. It does. It really does. No television. Yeah. No no computers. No internet. But, you know, General Philip Sheridan and uh, General William Sherman ordered a winter campaign, and this was in 1868. So Sheridan and Sherman were both determined to bring total war to the rebellious tribes by depriving them of their means of mobility and subsistence. So, the army was to slaughter the Indians' horses, burn their teepees and their equipment, and destroy their food supplies. The intent was not so much to kill the Indians as it was to compel them through starvation, basically, uh, to come into the government-run Indian agencies. Really? So, anyway, it was no secret that the Cheyenne, the Comanche, the Kiowa, the Arapaho, they would occupy traditional winter encampments somewhere in southwest Indian territory, just east of the Texas panhandle. Uh, So, it was a likely place for them to spend the winter. Probably not quite as cold. But uh, Sheridan directed three widely separate army columns to converge on the area. One column from the southeast, another from the east, and another from the north. So they were going to surround this, this uh, uh, the Indians. But So here we are, November 27th, again, you know, it's wintertime. Custer had risen from his nap. He'd, you know, he'd just been laying down, taking a nice little hour-long in, in nap. In the snow. Yeah, in the snow. Yeah. And he was making final arrangements for the regiment's surprise attack. The pre-arranged signal for the four battalions to commence the attack was supposed to be the regimental band striking up the stirring Irish tune called Gary Owen. Have you ever heard of that? No. No, no, I, have I haven't not. either. So that was supposed to be the signal for attack. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, 
before the bandsman. Why didn't they just yell attack? <laughs> I don't know. You know, but before the band could start playing, a single solitary rifle shot out, and an Indian by the name of Double Wolf, the Cheyenne villager who saw the troopers approaching, he had fired the warning shot. Uh-huh. So, so there was a warning. All right. Yeah. Now, Custer personally led a company toward the village from the northwest. There was a Major Elliott from another side, a Captain Myers from the other side, and a Captain Thompson uh, from all four sides. So the sudden attack came as a as a complete surprise to the village's 250 Indian inhabitants. So 250 people, bigger than Murtaugh, yeah, by far, and uh, they were under a surprise attack early in the morning by 800 of the Seventh Cavalry. Okay, okay, and this also included Chief Black Kettle, and we've talked about Heard him about before. Him. Yep. But anyway, they were shocked and confused. The Indians, including uh, young boys and some women, fought back as best they could. But Custer's attack had quite literally caught them sleeping. And so a one-sided battle that was essentially over in 10 minutes. It was just a, it didn't last very long. Really? At one point, Custer saw some men chasing after some women and children. And I thought this was kind of a neat deal. He actually ordered the troopers to stop. He wouldn't allow them to attack this group of women and children. Well, and we're, I don't know, even it, want to go into this. Yeah, I don't even want to go into that area because yeah. I've seen too many portrayals of the inhumanity that right. was displayed. And, and at least Custer had the yeah. gumption to say, no, we're not going to shoot innocent yeah. women and children. Yeah, at really. This. And, and it did happen, yes. yes. But anyway, there were about... Like wounded knee was terrible. Yeah. But there were about 53 women and children that had been captured during the battle, and Custer reasoned that their presence among his troopers would make the warriors who withdrew uh, after the battle extremely reluctant reluctant to fire at the column for fear of hitting the women and children. So he kind of had a human shield with his uh, troops. Mm-hmm. But anyway, after the gunfire died down, Custer set his men uh, to work executing Sheridan's uh, total war instructions. And while most of the troopers burned teepees and destroyed camp equipment and food supplies, some were given the task of killing the Indians' horses. You know, this is uh, pretty gruesome that we performed that. Uh, the horse to the Indian was, man, that was pretty important. Was they used wealth. horses. That was, uh, that was like money to them. Yeah, it was wealth. It was transportation. Yeah. It was yep. a battle, Absolutely. and they killed the majority of 900 animals in the 900? Herd. Yeah. Oh, but that's They sick. spared enough to put the Indian captives on. And, yeah. and the, burned the teepees. Yeah. So basically, these Indians in the wintertime had nothing. No, no. So anyway, uh, uh, there was a Lieutenant Godfrey that uh, raced up to Custer's command post to uh, let him know of a little startling uh, development. Uh, A little startling. Yeah, you're going to find this interesting. What Godfrey had observed was a huge village or a series of villages extending for six miles along the Washita and containing perhaps 6,000 Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Kiowa Indians. And this is a neighboring village? Yes. I would say it's time to get on your horse out of the snow, Georgie, and get out of Dodge City. Well... Custer's attack held had in fact struck only Black Kettle's small outlying oh, encampment. Yeah. So now, like hornets swarming, swarming out of a stirred-up nest, hundreds, probably thousands of angry warriors were uh, uh, getting ready to head towards Custer. <laughs> Okay. This is now, a Saturday morning cereal. <laughs> you know, and Custer, uh, uh, he had to figure out a way to get out of there in a hurry. Yeah, like run. Yeah, so Custer knew it was time to withdraw. Uh, his <laughs> Gee, he was a sharp guy. <laughs> well, it didn't come to 
passed later. <laughs> anyway, you know, uh, he uh, so he wanted to get his troopers uh, mounted, got the 53 Indian hostages on ponies at the column's flanks to discourage the warriors from firing at the regiment, and then led his 7th Cavalry east toward, now get this, this is kind of interesting, toward the gathering swarms of warriors. Now why? Okay, here's why. The... Uh, because Custer's bold bluff worked, the warriors were reluctant to fire at the soldiers lest they hit the Indian captives. And now fearful that the cavalrymen were advancing on their families, they rushed back to their village to defend their homes. So the thousand or so Indians that were headed towards them were afraid for their families. So they turned around and went back to their camp to protect their families. I see. So anyway, when full darkness fell, Custer abruptly reversed course and headed the opposite way. He reunited the regiment with his supply wagons that he'd left well behind. Uh, and uh, anyway, he put a safe distance between him and the Indians. Now, uh, they claimed that the regiment had killed 103 warriors. However, this is a, a wild exaggeration. More likely, they had only killed maybe a dozen warriors. Yeah. So it wasn't really quite the massacre that... Uh, what was this battle? What area? The Bash- Battle of the Washita, yeah. just east of uh, the Texas Panhandle okay, gotcha. in Oklahoma. Yeah. Now, Custer initially reported that uh, he, he had only lost four dead and 13 wounded and yet uh, he forgot to mention there was 20 other guys that had gone off on their own that didn't return I see. so they actually lost more cavalry men we got about a minute and a half okay I, I, that's what i got okay. <laughs> okay so you know there's controversy and many of the army civilian leaders considered black kettle a peaceful chief who wanted to bring his cheyenne band into the government agency yeah but it was clear that black kettle's village included many young warriors who had recently been raiding and killing in kansas and the old chief had even admitted, he said, I have not been able to keep the young warriors at home. Mm. And despite the controversies, the Battle of the Washita not only uh, accomplished Sheridan's intent by convincing many Indian bands to come to the government, it also established Custer's reputation as an Indian fighter. Okay? Oh, yeah. Now, Custer's self-promotion helped a little. He wrote a book called Life on the Plains, and that was exp- uh, published and kind of bragged a little about some of his adventures. A little. Uh, but eight years later, we know what happened along the banks of the little. It was, it's farm. a good thing it wasn't a book on tactics. <laughs> well, you know, when you take a nap an hour before you go into attack, I don't know. Aye, aye, aye. And don't look over the next hill to see that there's 6,000 yeah. more Indians just over the next hill. Didn't they hire scouts? You know, you would think they. I know yeah. they did. Okay. But. Okay. Maybe at this time they didn't have anybody. Doctor History, you did it again. A great no. story. Next week we're going to talk about Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see on that okay. one. Okay. <laughs>